now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Tuesday. Thanks for tuning in here to the Steve Day Show. Powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. For those of you wondering, we, we are monitoring Game 7 of the World Series. By the way, it's 1-1 in the top of the fourth. Cubs struck first. Indians just got a run back. If you're asking me who I'm rooting for, I'm, I'm rooting for the Cubs tonight. I mean, we have a great affiliate in Cleveland, but I am rooting for the Cubs tonight for the same reason I was all over Cleveland in the NBA Finals. Because of, of my position as a 33-year suffering Detroit Lions fan, I, I have empathy for all suffering fan bases, and I want your suffering to end. And I, and I really wanted LeBron. I thought that'd be a great story if LeBron came home and broke Cleveland's championship jinx, and he did. And I think Cubs fans have suffered enough. Plus, if you're tired of the annoying, lovable loser shtick, having them win tonight would make it all go away forever, right? Now they're just another baseball team, right? They're just another ball club tonight. Sure. Right? I mean, it, it, the Red Sox were, you know, they're just another, another. they're really good you know, franchise, but they're just another baseball team now. They, they broke the curse That's in 04, so they're just another team now. So if you're tired of the lovable loser, lovable loser yuppie shtick, just have the Cubs win tonight, and that's over now. And we can all move on with our lives. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at Steve Dace Show. Of course, a week from tonight, we are going to be stem to stern covering the election. Uh, it is coming up now in seven days, and it can't arrive soon enough. Before we get into the numbers... I want to paint a a word picture for you, if I could, which um, which I think um, is the best analysis I can provide of where things truly stand. And Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review will join us to take us inside politics in about 15 minutes, and he's the real expert around here, and he'll tell you whether I'm all wet or whether I'm on to something. But imagine an NCAA tournament game. And it is, as the late Jim Valvano used to say, survive in advance. It's one and done. It is single elimination. You get no off nights. You have one off game. It doesn't matter how dominant you were up until that point. See undefeated Kentucky against Wisconsin in the Final Four a couple of years ago. See that great undefeated UNLV team back in the day in the Final Four against Duke. You have one bad night. And that's all that matters. You're done. So you're down to the last two minutes of an NCAA tournament game. And the team that has been ahead this entire time has a systemic flaw. There's a fundamental flaw in their team. They're poor free throw shooters. So of course we get down to the end of the game, Aaron, and what does the what does the team that's behind do to extend the game? Foul. Foul. To stop the clock. Force you to step up to the charity stripe 15 feet away from the hoop. And make your shots. And if you do, then you close the sale. And that reinforces what you've done the previous 38 minutes of this game. But if you don't, well, that lead starts looking shaky. And shakier. 
And every now and then, doesn't happen often. I mean, most of the time when the team that can't make their foul shots get pressed, they still have enough of a lead that they run out, essentially, the clock expires. And the fans of that team were wiped the sweat off their brow and they took a 9 or 10 point game and they made it a 3 or 4 point game or they took a 10 or 15 point game and they made it a 5 or 6 point game and you're like just glad we got survive in advance just get a just win baby but every now and then not often every now and then you have northern iowa texas a&m last year in the ncaa tournament when northern iowa just they couldn't have dunked a free throw they couldn't inbound the ball. AM's getting four point plays and ends up winning the game in overtime. But even then, remember, they couldn't win it in regulation. There wasn't enough time or possessions left. They needed to extend the clock. Now, that does not happen often. But it does happen sometimes. That is exactly where I believe this election is at. Right now, a lot of people are acting as if it just started this week. And like, nothing's happened the last, the last eight months, and, and most of America sat around with their thumbs up their, their sphincters with no clue, oh, hey! And on Friday, millions of people woke up and said, well, hot damn, Hillary Clinton's corrupt with this Comey letter. Nobody, why didn't anybody tell me? That's not the way it works, friends. Now, what does happen, though, is that Comey letter was like when that team who's ahead has the big turnover. Right? So you hit a three, and then they go to inbound the ball, and you steal it from them and get another bucket. And now you got an extra possession. And now what happens when you're the fan of that team that was behind and they just get five points on one possession? What do you do? Uh, you, were sl- you were sunk down in your chair, but now you're sitting up. Oh, all right, maybe we got a shot again. That's what's happened the last few days is a lot of depressed Republican voters or people who are Republican-leaning undecideds who, were, who thought Trump had no shot. Remember last week at this time we were talking about if it got down to the end and it appeared Trump had no shot, people would say, I, I want my conscience clear. I'm not voting for the guy. Well, now that it appears that there might be a shot, you have the reverse of this. And, and you see this. Uh, last week at this time, we were talking about Texas within the margin for error, Hillary ahead in, in Arizona, Mi- Missouri within the margin for mm-hmm. error. The polling in all of those states right now look like they're all safe Trump states. He's gonna, now, he's going to underperform Romney in all three of those states, but it looks like he's, that he's not going to lose those states now. That reinforces my theory. So the home fans are like, okay, I'm gonna, maybe we can win this after all. Now, the team that's ahead, they have a fatal flaw. They send Andre Drummond of my Detroit Pistons to the free throw line every possession. So Hillary Hillary Clinton has an excellent organization. She's had the money advantage. She's had the media advantage. Ain't that the truth? So she's got all these advantages that make her the superior team, but she's got a fatal flaw. And in Hillary's case, the fatal flaw is her character. People don't like her. In the end, she can't close the sale on her own. She needs help. Similar to, you know what? If you've, got, if you've got a player on your team that's a bad free throw shooter, you can hide him the whole game. But when it gets down to the end, I see this. I'm a Detroit Pistons fan. I see this, man. Andre Drummond may have 20-20. 20, 20, 20 points and 20 rebounds. But we get down to the end of the game, who are they fouling every single possession? 
Andre Drummond. Why? Because Andre Drummond may have kicked your rear end up and down the court for the previous three and a half quarters, but at the end of the game, it's nobody feeding him the ball in the post where he dunks over you. He's got to step on his own. He has to strip, he has to step to the free throw line, and he's got to make those shots and close the sale himself. And if he does, then you just throw your hands up and say, you know what, man, you proved all night you're the better player, more power to you. But if he doesn't, well, now you've now the door is open for you to make the run at the end. This is what's happening right now to Hillary Clinton. She is still ahead in the game. She should still win the game. But she has to step now to the free throw line and hit a couple of foul shots. If she doesn't, then she's going to have to hope that the other team, a a couple of those three-pointers they heave up don't go in. Or she's going to hope somebody else on her team can inbound the ball and dribble out and run out the clock because she can't make the free throws herself. That's why you got Obama coming out today to hammer James Comey. That's what that is. Somebody else on the team, they're now concerned, maybe she can't make the free throws. We just need her to make a couple. Just put this thing away. Maybe she can't make them. Maybe somebody else is going to have to make a play to close this out in the last minute. That's where I think we are in this election. Don't lie to yourself and pretend like every... The, if, you, if you tuned into the first, last two minutes of an NCAA tournament game, there's a reason one team was ahead and the other one was behind. The previous 38 minutes count. When the team that was behind, when they turned the ball over, when they wasted possessions. You know, if Trump had had even one dominant, really good debate performance, he would have solidified his base weeks ago instead of having to solidify Arizona yesterday. He'd have solidified it two or three weeks ago, which would have allowed him to put all of his energies into playing offense like Hillary's been allowed to do for the last couple of months. But he didn't. So there's a reason that team is behind. They wasted possessions. They didn't make their shots. They didn't value the basketball. They didn't play great defense or all of the above. They were behind for a reason. So just because one team has the momentum right now doesn't mean they're ahead. But just because one team's ahead right now doesn't always mean they win. Hillary's going to have to make some free throws down the stretch or someone else is going to have to come along in order to run out the clock. We'll find out what Daniel Horowitz thinks about that analogy when we come back. You're listening to Steve Dace. The new benchmark in broadcast mediocrity, Steve Dace. All right, let's go inside politics with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review. By the way, Cubs just got two more in the top of the fourth. They now lead three to one in game seven of this highly rated and historic World Series. And so Daniel Horowitz is here with us from Conservative Review. My friend, how are you? Hey, great to be back with you. I'm actually in a good mood. I got a new radio microphone, so hopefully we won't be shut off. We are almost to the end of this pathetically wretched election, Daniel. And I gave 
an analogy to open up the show tonight of where I think this thing is at. Before we get into numbers, I'll just I'll reset it for you quickly. But I liken this to an NCAA tournament game, which is single elimination, survive in advance. One team's been ahead the whole game, and we're down to the last two minutes now, and the other team is fouling to extend the game. And if the team, and there were reasons that one team was ahead. They were the better overall team this day. Um, and, and, and the other team didn't value every possession, didn't redeem all the time on the court, didn't make as many shots as they were supposed to when they had the chance. But they're within striking distance to the point that it's worthy of fouling to extend the game. And now it's a matter of, you know, the, the, the team that's been ahead does have a systemic weakness. And that systemic weakness is free throw shooting. So they have to go to the line now and make some free throws. If they do, they close this thing out. If they don't, they open a door for the other team, provided they can make some shots, to steal a game from them they had no business winning for the first 38 of the 40 minutes. Now, that doesn't happen very often. A lot of times, the team that's behind and and the team that struggles making free throws, they get scared and maybe almost lose, but then make one or two at the end and hold on. But every once in a while, like Northern Iowa, Texas A&M in the tournament last year, they do have a complete and total systemic meltdown, and the and the team that was behind manages to pull it out at the very end. I think the odds of that happening are about 25%. In this case, the free throw shooter is Hillary Clinton, and the systemic weakness is herself. And now, if, now when she steps to the line, if she can't make these shots, then they're going to need somebody else on this team to try and run out the clock or make a play because she can't do it on her own. That's where I think this race is at. I do think Trump has the momentum, but momentum doesn't mean you're ahead. I do think Hillary Clinton is ahead, but ahead doesn't always mean that you win. Your thoughts? No, I, I'm actually more bullish for Hillary than you are. I would put Trump's chances more, more around 10%. I, I, I think the framework of your analogy generally works, but the problem is if you're down 10, 12, 14 points in a basketball game, you could theoretically hit seven buckets and, and, and tie it up, assuming you have a reasonable amount of time. Here the problem is the guy doesn't have a ground game. And if he would even perform on par with the RCP average, which which still, in the best-case scenario, will not get him to 70, I would be very surprised. Let's not forget Mitt Romney was within, I believe, 0.7 on the national RCP average, less than a point behind Obama. It was 0.9 was the final RCP average in 2012. Yeah, but a lot, a lot of polls had him tied or up one yep. or two. Um, and what happened was the state polls were never as good, but across the board – he underperformed by almost exactly three points in every single state. And I guess pretty much nationally, you had states like Nevada and, and Virginia who really got blown out in. Um, your, your home state of Iowa was a little, you know, Obama was up a little bit, pretty close, but he lost it by five and a half. Romney had a decent ground game. He had some failures. I understand Hillary is not Obama. But when you have that much of a mismatch and you have that much early voting banked before he surged and even before the FBI scandal, I could easily see a scenario where he doesn't get the Romney numbers. But to the extent that he would get the Romney numbers and even surpass it, I just don't see how he makes it up. To me, this is more like the 1993 Super Bowl where the Bills were getting crushed by the Dallas Cowboys and and Don Beebe had that famous play where he ran down Leon Lett, who picked him off, and in a spectacular fashion, made an amazing play, knocked the ball out of his hand when he was celebrating at the two-yard line and made it a safety instead of a, a touchdown. It was a nice moment. You embarrassed the other side a little bit, but you ain't winning. 
in this case, obviously, you know, it's not analogous to being behind what 30, 35 points in a, in a, in the fourth quarter, but it's similar thing. I think he is out of field goal range. Here's the data that we had today. And considering how damaged Hillary was coming into today as a candidate, this is probably the best she could have hoped for. Uh, she was ahead in all three polls of North Carolina. She was ahead or tied in the four polls released from Florida. Obviously, those are must-wins for Trump to have any chance. The highly regarded Marquette University poll of Wisconsin still has her comfortably ahead there. You still have seen Trump struggle to break 40% in that state. The numbers show that her Pennsylvania, Colorado, Virginia firewall is still holding. Without those four states, it, it, it just it's, it's very difficult to envision Trump having a path to 270. You look at Nevada's interesting to me. The last seven polls of Nevada are three have Clinton ahead, three have Trump ahead, and then there's a tie. You can't get any closer than that. Now, there has been good news for Trump today. Uh, Arizona, Missouri, and Indiana, which looked like they were competitive a week ago, now look like they're no longer in play. Uh, it looks like he has solidified his base, or James Comey has solidified his base enough uh, in the last four or five days that some of these states that it looked like Hillary was going to try and play in, you had the Texas Tribune poll last week that had a Texas a statistical tie. It looks like that's all off the table. But but I to go along with what you just said, you know, it, it's great to make a 10-0 run at the end of that NCAA tournament game. You were down by 20 to get within striking distance. But you really needed to go on that 10-0 run when you were down by 20 at halftime uh, in order to have enough possessions left at the end of the game. If Trump had had even one dominant debate performance, he this shows me Hillary was so weak of a candidate that one James Comey letter showed had a lot of Republicans decide they didn't have these doubts about Trump at the end and helped him solidify his base. What would he have done differently here, do you think, Daniel, if he had had one really good debate performance solidified states like Arizona, Missouri, and Indiana weeks ago so that he did have weeks to take a $25 million check from Sheldon Adelson and play offense in some of these states rather than trying to do it in the last five days? I think what that matters with are white college-educated voters, and it manifests itself in Colorado and Virginia. Colorado and Virginia, is those are the two states that provide the ultimate um, roadblock for Trump winning. Because if you're going to lose those two Bush states, you have to win a state that Bush did not. And when it comes to Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, it's the same farce every single cycle that we think we're surging there and you run up against the blue firewall and it just doesn't go anywhere. And the polling is showing that, you know, it, it tightened relative to when he was way down. But remember, Mitt Romney looked like he was doing good. I think the RCP had maybe about three point game. He lost it by five and a half in the end. He got blown out in Wisconsin, got crushed in Michigan, um, didn't go anywhere. You could say Trump has a little bit more of appeal with white non uh, non college educated but it's not enough to win it. And then he is so so if you're going to lose Colorado and Virginia, which he is, there's no evidence he's going to win that. You need one of those states. Then there's also Nevada. I I will eat my hat if Trump wins Nevada. Really? I, I, I am. I am very I, I have PTSD about Nevada. I have watched that state for 10 years. Republicans have dramatically underperformed every single poll there. Democrats have an unbelievable machine there. You saw it in the Senate race with Harry Reid. Hmm. You saw it in every presidential race. I mean, Romney lost it by, I think, seven in the end. He, he really underperformed there. You can't tell me that Trump was in trouble in Arizona, and some polls still only have him up a few, and yet he's up three to six. All right, hold it right there, Daniel. That's where I'm going to pick it up when we come back. Stay tuned. 
You're listening to Steve Dace. We don't play for a team. We fight for the truth. You're listening to Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review here on the Salem Radio Network. We're going inside politics with Daniel Horowitz here from Conservative Review. Let me throw another sports analogy at you, Daniel. And, you know, depending on the style of play of the team you're up against, um, being behind to them feels differently. Uh, for example, if, if you're playing a triple option team in the, in the, in the fourth quarter and you're down by uh, 10 points, it, it might feel like you're down by three touchdowns because their style of play, they run out the clock, they take the full 40 seconds, and they lean on you. On the other hand, if, if you're behind by 10 points in the fourth quarter against a spread, air, air, you know, an air assault team, uh, you know, like a Texas Tech or a Cal Berkeley, with the way they, they you know, chuck it around the yard and it clock stops and every incomplete uh, pass, you know, a 10-point lead kind of feels like it's only a one-possession game, even though it's actually two possessions. I'm using that analogy because when you have the organizational advantage Hillary Clinton has, does a one or two point lead really feel like it's three or four? Does a two or three point lead really feel like it's four or five? On the other hand, if you're Hillary Clinton and you have the organizational advantage, if you're down, if you're behind by Trump by one or two points, do you feel like I'm going to win? Do you see what I'm getting at here? How much does it, how much does her organizational advantage really matter in the end? I mean, that's the thing. If I actually cared about the results and were, was emotionally invested in in this election the way I was in previous elections, I wouldn't be feeling comfortable. I mean, and I think that's why you and I could probably look at this more objectively than we have in the past, um, because you just look at the data. You don't have the emotional investment. Yeah, I, I really don't care who wins, and I really don't. I told our audience last night, she wins. We're going to have people like me are going to have a gun at our head from government trying to invade the church. What's going on in Georgia right now with the black Seventh-day Adventist pastor is going to be tiddlywinks compared to what the next four years will be like. But if he wins, we're going to take all the redefining of conservatism or Judeo-Christian morality that we have seen in order to conform to, to his graven image. We're going to see that on steroids if it goes from candidate Trump to President Trump. I mean, look what candidate Trump got Jerry Falwell Jr. to do for him. Imagine what he could do if President Trump could make him the ambassador to Barbados. You know what I'm saying? So... As far as I'm concerned, I just, I, I just have a different level of existential angst regardless of who wins. I just as soon get it over with, get one of these people out of my life, and get, get busy living so we can get busy dying. No, there's, there's no question about that. And that's why I think, you know, you look at this, I would not feel comfortable. Um, it would defy everything we know about electoral politics to have a, such a mismatch in ground game and have it not make one iota of a difference. So that's the thing. Right now, he has not put away Florida or North Carolina. Now, you could see momentum. You could see a case to be made that he could win. You could see a case to be made he won't win. Let's give him Iowa and, and Ohio because a consistent, narrow lead, but the demographics, um, that kind of makes sense. Um, you, you give him all the other red states. I think that's pretty clear. The Republicans have come home. Nothing about Colorado and Virginia have broken the right way. Um, there's no reason to believe at this point that Pennsylvania is going anywhere. So even if you look at the polling, it makes no it makes no sense that he should win. But I, what I want to say is 
if you look at the RCP average and you look at the state and national polling, Republicans have consistently underperformed across the board really since 2000. Even the two Bush ones, he was – they were always close races, but he was supposed to win comfortably. Ohio was much closer than it was supposed to be in 2004. 2000 is kind of funny because you had the DUI last minute that's mm-hmm. widely to, believed to have um, messed him up. But this has been going on. Republicans have been under – they overperform in a lot of congressional races, but they've been underperforming consistently even with a typical – normal structure of a campaign i cannot believe that if you go in there romney was up 1.5 in florida on average you know the notion that that's not going to hurt him the notion that he has that in the bag the notion that he's going to flip one of of virginia colorado or pennsylvania i just don't see it now some might say hey daniel you know you're wrong until now you said it would be a bigger blowout things have changed who's to say he can't go one one or two steps I mean, we'll find out in a couple of days, but that final tranche is a big deal because you are going up against that blue firewall that Bush wasn't able to crack. I don't think Cruz would have been able to crack either. I think he would have gotten Colorado and Virginia. That's the difference. But I, I just I when you're just talking a state like Florida where nine million people are going to vote. One, two or three points, dude, is a lot of people you have to move. I mean, we had, a, we had an Iowa caucus where 180,000 people voted. Cruz won by four points. Two or three points would have made what kind of difference in an election of 180,000 people? How many people does that equate to in an election of 9 million people? That's a lot of people. I think folks don't truly understand how many votes that really entails, Daniel. Oh, no. I mean, that's this is a no-brainer. Look, Romney... Um, versus Obama in 2012, Florida was regarded as the closest state. That was, I mean, tight as a tick. It was, I think, 0.9 difference. It was certainly less than one. The only state Nate Silver's missed in the last two presidential elections was Florida last time. But even then, in raw numbers, that worked out to um, something like 70,000, 80,000 votes. 75,000 was what Obama won the state by. Okay, 75,000, there you go. I mean, that that's an awful lot of people when you don't have a ground game. And again, 35% voted, I believe, by the end of last week. Um, I, I don't know. By I the just, way, in Miami-Dade and Broward counties, the Democrats since the 2012 election have registered almost the exact margin of victory that Obama had in the state four years ago with new voters. So keep that in mind. If they, if they need two or three points, that's where they'll go find them. More with Daniel Horowitz here in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. For such a time as this, Steve Dace. All right, back here with Daniel Horowitz as we go inside politics with Daniel each week here on the show from Conservative Review. So, Daniel, one of the things, and and this is the ultimate merger now of pop culture and media this election. I mean, you really can't tell half the time the the difference if these headlines ran as a crawler on Fox or CNN or on TMZ. 
But but more and more the last few cycles, we have seen that elections are places where future stars are born, like uh, Obama's raucous um, keynote address in the in, at the 2004 Democratic convention, where potential stars are created, but then when the guy loses, they kind of fade and go away. Like Joe the Plumber, Joe the Plumber, if McCain had won, would have probably been the biggest name, not called Rush Limbaugh on conservative talk radio, but now he's sort of a footnote into history, right? Uh, Nate Silver's star that bl- that blossomed after 2012 to the point that he left the nest of the New York Times and now has his own independent endeavor. There, I think there are two candidates to either be the 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 goat or the hero when this is over. Well, the goat or the goat, you know, because the kids say today the goat also means greatest of all time. So it can mean goat like it did for a wee, what goat means to we old fogies or what goat means to the kids today. And and the two that I'm looking at. Are the Huffington Post's attempt this cycle to do their own Nate Silver forecasting and the L.A. Times tracking poll? Okay, the L.A. Times tracking poll today has Trump ahead by six. In fact, if you want to have fun with math, go to the Real Clear Politics polling average and take out the the L.A. Times poll and then see what Hillary's lead is. And you won't believe how much the L.A. Times outlier result has really impacted with the national averages in that poll. And then you have the Huffington Post attempt to Nate Silver, which has Hillary, as of the time we went on the air tonight, at 98% to win. 98%. And they say that their forecast model is they simulate the data's outcome over 300,000 times Every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so they have it at 98%. One of these two, somebody here, Daniel, is going to be the new Nate Silver, and somebody's going to be the new John Zogby. I will be fascinated at this time next Tuesday to find out which one it is. Well, the difference is to the Democrats' enduring credit, they actually police their own. They don't lie to themselves on tactics. I mean, they run a tight ship. One thing I've always been impressed about the Democrats is they know where they are. One thing that always scared me about Republican campaigns, and I think we saw it a little bit towards the end with the Cruz campaign. Initially, they always knew where they were. The worst is when they think they're winning and you know they're not, you know they've lost control. Democrats always know where they are. Our guys, I'm not bothered by someone who thinks that they're in the game now, but they thought they were winning when they were getting crushed, you know, a month ago, six weeks ago. And that's the thing, the LA Times poll that they were all citing, they had him up when he was down 10, 12 points. So that's the problem. I think our side doesn't police them. Rasmussen was really the Zogby of last cycle. I mean, they're the ones that predicted Romney to win. And yet we're still citing them. Yeah, I'm so, surprised and- RCP still includes them. But I, I am surprised that RCP includes Rasmussen, but doesn't include public policy polling, which is the Daily Kosas polling. But the reality is I've been I've followed the last couple of elections. They've actually been pretty accurate, actually. Okay, so because that kind of goes along the lines of what you're saying. They don't like being lied to over there. Our side seems to enjoy it. Like our, our side seems to, you know, if you don't tell me that we win no matter what, you know, I mean, then then you're just a traitor who hates America. On the other side, they, they you know, they've got their sycophants, too, but they really don't mind more. They, they, you know, when it comes to tactics on issues, yeah, they, they lie to each other, you know, eight days a week. But when it comes to tactics on the process, they actually like to know what's up over there. I have noticed that as well. And look, the study of conservatism at its core is the study of the world as it is, not as you want it to be. Well, at least that's what it was supposed to be prior to this election. Yes. Yeah, and, and that, that's the thing. I, I ran a lot of or was involved in a lot of upstart 
very long shot primary challenges. And I believed in them. We thought we had there, there were factors and reasons why we thought we could win or could gain momentum. But there was never a time I felt that I was lying to myself. I always felt I think we knew where we were. And this is what scares me that these people did. They thought they were winning when they were demonstrably losing. And now they admit they were losing back then. But now they have momentum. So that's the thing. Nobody has control. And at some point we need to get our act together. Because we're not going to get anywhere, irrespective of who's the nominee. All right, so we've got a, a little bit less than three minutes with you. These, this is the last time we're going to talk until Tuesday. So as you fast forward now, six days from now, does Hillary Clinton step to the free throw line? Does she make the free throws to close this thing out? Does Trump pull the one in a million? You know, she she's up there bricking him like Andre Drummond at the end of an NBA game. So, and he's chucking and ducking three pointers at the end and and pulls it out at the end. What say you? Hey, I wish we'd be talking one more time in three days from now. But I, like I said, I do believe she'll make that throw. I believe she will become the most unpopular president ever to assume office. Um, but I I will just say this. It is pretty astounding if you think about it for the the Democrats to pull this off, given the macro factors. When was the last time a Democrat ever was elected to two full terms and then was able to give that over to a member of the same party to continue for another four years? The last time really was FDR to Truman. But but, he died. But he died in office. doesn't count because he got himself in there. It has never happened. Republicans did it rarely, and not coincidentally, Reagan and Coolidge, if you count Harding, Harding Coolidge to Hoover, um, McKinley uh, with, with Roosevelt to Taft. Uh, but it, it is very rare because people get tired. People, we constantly flip back and forth. Given the economy, given Obamacare, given the national security, it is pretty astounding. So to me, that is just the one X factor. I do think voters are coming home that th- that this election was the first election that was never about fundamentals. But once people are voting, I do think it's not just the FBI scandal. There is a little bit of the fundamentals coming into play. And if, if there were a couple of things they would have done differently in conjunction with the ground game, in conjunction with a little less early voting, I think they could pull it off. Um, but given that that's not true, I, I will stand by my prediction that Hillary will win. What about do you think it's uh, yes or no? Yes or no only closer. Is it closer than the Romney race in 2012? Slightly closer within the raw electoral numbers, but county district wise, roughly the same. Yes or no. Republicans maintain the Senate. They maintain and I think 52 seats. All right. We'll find out next Wednesday when we have you on, brother. How you did. Thanks for joining us one last time before the election. Thank you. Take care. We'll come back, have some uh, reaction to what we just heard from Daniel Horowitz here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. For truth, justice, and the way America should be, the Steve Day Show. Now, you may not know this, but your current phone carrier might be using your money to undermine your values. And that's why Patriot Mobile was created. To give conservatives like you a chance to put your money where your values are and support a company that will tr- that you know will support your values. Patriot Mobile offers nationwide talking and texting and high-speed 4G LTE data at competitive prices. And 
they'll donate up to 5% of your monthly bill to a conservative organization that you choose. That means you're going to get the same quality service, the latest and greatest phones, competitive prices, but this time for the causes that you believe in. So go to PatriotMobile.com. That's PatriotMobile.com. Or call 1-800-A-PATRIOT. That's 1-800-A-PATRIOT. And when you decide to switch, use the promo code STEVE to get the $35 activation fee waived on up to two phones. Some reaction to what we just heard this hour from Daniel Horowitz, his last visit to this program before this wretchedly pathetic election finally comes to an end. Did he say anything that stood out to you, gentlemen? Well, I think um, going back to your analogy first uh, about this uh, race coming down to uh, a couple of basketball teams um, uh, towards the end of a game, one's behind trying to get back. I think that's excellent. I think that's uh, I think that's exactly where we are at. Uh, but I, I do tend to agree with uh, with Daniel that um, yes, this uh, this may be getting closer. Yes, maybe Trump uh, has the momentum right now, but nothing that we've seen from any of the races that he needs to win statewide or you know, any of the states that he needs to win right now. Nothing that we've seen, unless it defies everything we know about electoral politics, nothing that we've seen would uh, tend to indicate that he can just pull a 180 uh, on uh, November 8th and just come away victorious. Nothing that we've seen so far would indicate that. So I don't know. Um, it... Uh, it is, like I said, uh, it does seem like momentum is on his side. It just uh, remains to be seen whether that... What do you think, Todd? Yeah, I, I think I'm closer to Daniel on the 10% than the 25%, and I know, you know, you, you guys are both, you know, gutting that one out. I don't I don't think it's strictly scientific. Maybe ultimately you two are, are closer than, than that. But I, I wonder, is it, it sometimes... I wonder if if we're wrong and Donald Trump does pull that 10% off, what yet more does that say about us, how wrong we have been this last year? I mean, at some point, if a society that has a chance of rebounding has to be right about something, it at least has to be able to read the tea leaves of the moral decay and just be able to do simple arithmetic. If we can't do that anymore, Steve... This, this, all this is is just a, a very fancy uh, gold-gilded Rube Goldberg machine that, you know, is on a road to nowhere, isn't it? If it... No, I don't think so. I, I think all it means is that Hillary Clinton was a systemically flawed candidate, and at the end, couldn't make her free throw. Northern Iowa didn't make the free throws they needed to make at the end against Texas A&M. Even without a ground game? I, I, th- I, I think, well, that's why I don't think the odds are very high. That's why. That's why I think when you're behind, but you're also behind in ground game, you're like more behind. You're listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 2 of the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget next hour. It's Worldview Wednesday. 
and we're going to discuss the enemy's game plan. You'll get to hear audio of a message I gave at uh, the home church we attend here in Des Moines recently, and we think it's worthy of playing for the audience here at large, so we'll do that for Worldview Wednesday coming up here in hour number three. Uh, Also coming up a little bit later on in this hour, another front opened up in the war against religious freedom. But uh, I want to begin by playing you some audio. Last night on this show, I talked about why I, re- on a personal level, why I don't care who wins. And if, if Hillary wins, I know what will happen. Whatever Obama has already tried to do will be the baseline. She will try to go further especially against the church. She will try to use the coercive force of government to further diminish the influence of the church. I don't think there's any doubt about this. I I think you have to be naive in the extreme to think otherwise. That presents for somebody like me an existential dilemma for the next four years. However, I'm going to face an existential dilemma if if, if Donald Trump wins. If Donald Trump wins, much of the same, many of the same arguments I've had to have all this campaign cycle, the the bastardized political or biblical analogies, the nitwitted conspiracy thinking, this will be the new normal. Because if people were willing to do this for candidate Trump, what do you think they might do for President Trump? And as we have seen the tendency to redefine Christianity, to redefine conservatism in order to conform to his graven image, we will continue to see it for the next four years, which will present an existential dilemma for somebody like me. So there's an existential, you know, that's why I just want this to be over with, so I can be rid of one of these people and get on to the the other one pestering me for the next four years. It's because you want the lesser of two evils. One of these people pestering me is is the lesser of two evils compared to both of them doing it simultaneously. But Steve, some of you will say that's paranoia. There's really no evidence that's what's really going on out there. I want you to listen to some audio from CNN earlier today, and I wish I could tell you this was all made up in a needle in the haystack. Except what you're going to hear has been my email inbox, my Twitter timeline, my Facebook account for a year has been this stuff. I wish, the, I wish I could say these are all liberal plants. Trust me, I hope I could say that. It would give me something I lack a little bit at the moment, which is hope. Unfortunately, it has been what I have, been, what I have run into far too often over the last year. They have no real issues that they can win on, so all they can do is try to pick on Trump and his character and try to make that be the issue. Donald Trump supporters in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, defending their candidate and his character, despite a new ad from the Clinton campaign. What do you think of Donald Trump's character? Awesome, beautiful. Donald Trump really has the character of God, a loving, compassionate father. Donald Trump was the man that God chose for a time as this. Are you concerned at all about your candidate's character? Absolutely not, no. I think we've all fallen short of the, you know, of what God in, uh, expects of all of us, so we've all missed the mark. So he missed the mark a few times. This voter originally supported Ben Carson, but now is backing Trump. He's not perfect. I'm not looking for perfect. I'm looking for somebody to save this country. Many here admit that Trump has flaws, but given the options, they say they can look beyond them. They are even willing to forgive him for bragging about groping women on that Access Hollywood tape. Does it bother you to hear him talk about women that way or no? Um, 
Yes, um, but is it a deal breaker? No. Some of that, the media has made it be worse than what it is. It doesn't bother me. The tape is the tape. I mean, he said those things on the tape. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. What about those women accusing him of sexually assaulting them? Not even that makes women voters here question Trump's character. I think those women need to grow with that personally. Um, you know, it's been a lot of years. Get over it. Those in Trump's corner went on to suggest it was a joke that Hillary Clinton would even attempt to hit Trump on the issue of character. He may have said things, but Hillary has done the things. Her character is so flawed and uh, got so many problems. Who is she to point the finger? What do you think about her character? Where do you see problems? Well, obviously with her emails and Benghazi and all the other troubles that she's caused in the world. Can I do a Hillary pivot and just say, it's not that he's unfit, it's that she's unfit. She has done everything that's been illegal and has done everything she possibly can to sell this country out. And about those Clinton emails? If her mouth is moving, she's not telling the truth. I, I just can't trust her as a candidate. Mm -hmm. She's not reliable, she's not honest. The last thing this country needs, Trump supporters say, is another come. career politician even if their man isn't perfect. Uh, I think he's better suited to run the country because it, it's more of a business that this country needs rather than the, the corruption that Hillary represents. So it sounds like you're willing to look past some of his character flaws to have the president that you want. Yes, absolutely. I have been up against this for a year, and I'm not alone in this industry. You want to know why we so rarely take calls on this show? You just heard it. I told our team here months ago, I'm not giving an audience to this. I'm, I can't tell you how many people in my industry I have talked to that this is what their caller bank is like every show and they can't handle it anymore. And they're not, and most of them aren't even never Trump like me. They just can't deal with this. I'm not giving an audience to this. I'm not supporting it. I, 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 if this is what it takes to make a living doing this, I will do something else and I will be perfectly okay with that. I did not get into this for that. Donald Trump has the character of God. Donald Trump is God's anointed. It, every, Hillary's character matters, but Donald Trump's does not. Bible verses taken out of context. Chicks who allege that they were assaulted. It's, it's statute of limitations has ended. Man up. Wonder how many of these people in Eau Claire went to Juanita Broderick on Twitter, do you think, guys, and told her to man up? Statue of limitations on that Bubba Clinton thing, Paula, Paula Jones, has, has, has expired. Man up. Think they did that? You know what this sounds like? Todd, tell me this doesn't sound like what cable news networks on the left sounded like during Lewinsky, during the Clinton years. Isn't this what it sounded like? It's the exact same playbook. Isn't this what it sounded like? Obama's gonna, Obama's gonna give me a phone. Obama's gonna buy me a car. Obama's, Obama's gonna change it. Obama's gonna save us. That's what this kid's singing. The only thing missing here are the kids singing hymns. Only thing missing. Oh, I have audio of that too, just of Trump. This is. This will be the next four years. It will be whatever he says is Christianity. Whatever he says is conservatism is. And if you dare to say, pardon me, that's not the way it goes. You hate America. You're a traitor. You must be, you're voting for Hillary then. You're a communist. You're a sellout. You're a cuck. 
this has been what has become of this. What I have been up against this mindset for well over a year. And it's why we have been very judicious about taking calls on this show most of this campaign, going all the way back to the primary. Tried it once early on. We, 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 every, you know, birther conspiracy questions. Yeah, no, no, I'm not doing that. I will never do that. No one will ever pay me enough to do this. I will not do this. If you're asking me to do this, you're essentially firing me. Just to put that marker out there now. I will never serve this clientele. That's not what I'm in here to do. Not doing this. I just want everybody to know this now. Because if you ask me to do it later, don't be, don't be shocked and surprised and dismayed when the answer is a resounding no. And I'm sorry, gentlemen, if it may cost you your jobs. But I didn't get into this to do that. No way. Am I overreacting to this? No, I hear the underpasses are nice this year. I'm with you. <laughs> you know, well, it is unseasonably yeah. warm here in it Iowa, is, actually, yes. for late October, early November. Mm-hmm. This takes me way back when we were starting the Iowa Caucus podcast. And, I, and Trump was starting to gain momentum. And both you and I agreed that he was uh, gaining some momentum for the right reasons. He was saying some things that needed to be said about the establishment. And my job, we set it up where I was the reporter asking you questions. And I asked you, well, what happens, Steve, when the time comes when you need to make the kill shot on Trump? And you said, well, that that's not going to happen. And I, I agreed wholeheartedly with you. What we didn't know about, it's Trump's not the Trump cult is the issue, mm-hmm. not Donald Trump. In our future, in terms of metaphorical kill shots and dealing with that, it's going to be a daily, ugly, messy beast of a problem. Look around your churches. You want to know why you don't see a lot of millennials? Why don't you go ahead and grab that audio and listen to it for yourself? That's why. You're listening to Steve Dace. It's not about the next election. It's about the next generation. Steve Dace. There is a story over at the Daily Signal, which is the news arm of the Heritage Foundation. I mean, we were, we were just talking, what do the next four years look like? <clears throat> Pardon me. What do the next four years look like if Hillary Clinton wins? And I, I, I told you, she is going to put... Whatever the whatever Obama's done, that will be the baseline moving forward, and it'll be boot to the throat time uh, for the church in America. And there is a story that just backs up this assertion. This is a preview of what will be the new normal. To tell us about it, Melanie Israel is here with us from the Heritage Foundation. Melanie, how are you? Welcome to the show tonight. Hey, Steve. Great. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you with us. This headline, I think, speaks volumes. Obama threatens to veto military bill because, wait for it, wait for it, it protects religious groups. Melanie, tell us about this. You heard it right, folks. The White House has been indicating to offices on Capitol Hill that President Obama is willing to veto the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act if it includes the Russell Amendment. Uh, the Russell Amendment is essentially decades-old policy that we're taking that has applied 
to employment law for decades and applying it as far as federal contracts are concerned. The Obama administration is having none of it, and they are willing to veto our DOD funding for next year if it's included. Which would mean what? Can you give us some practical examples of what that would look like, how that might alter uh, the religious liberty within the military or those who are dealing with the Pentagon, Melanie? Sure, sure. Um, What we need to be sure we highlight about the Russell Amendment is that it's not just applying to the military. It's not just applying to the Department of Defense. It is included in the NDAA, but it's applying to everybody across the government. And what it does is it prevents the administration from stripping contracts and grants from faith-based social service providers whose, here's the kicker, whose internal staffing policies reflect their faith. So this is not about provision of services to the general public. This is about a faith-based group's internal staffing policies that wants to contract with the federal government. So let's say you've got a Catholic charity that wants to work with the federal government to provide housing. According to the Obama administration, this Catholic group would have to basically say, you know, forget about what our faith tenants say. We are going to bow down to the Obama administration's LGBT agenda and ignore our faith-based tenants that are reflected in our staffing policies. And again, I think the key word here is internal. Your internal hiring as as a ministry now becomes subject to review uh, via government contracting, uh, negotiation, standing, etc. Exactly. So with employment law, this is something that's been in Title VII for decades, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. This is something that has been unanimously upheld by the Supreme Court. Faith-based organizations are free to hire based on the tenets of their faith. So that's not changing. What the Obama administration is saying is essentially, fine, you can do that, but you're not going to be able to participate with the federal government when it comes to grants and contracts. In other words, they want to use government funding as blackmail uh, to try and convince religious groups to to violate their own religious conscience, uh, force them to choose between um, God and mammon, so to speak. Exactly. And, you know, what's so frustrating about this is that religious groups are the best at providing social services because they're doing it out of love. They're doing it because this is something that they feel called to do out of their heart. (laughs) They're not trying to help people because there's something in it for them. This is something that is a genuine calling for so many of these groups. And they're essentially being told, choose between the tenets of your faith when you're staffing your organization, or you don't get a seat at the table. Where's this story go from here, Melanie? Well, as you know, Congress is in recess right now until the election is over. And depending on how that pans out, it's going to be pretty interesting on Capitol Hill um, as we enter the final month of the Obama administration. So we'll have a lame duck Congress that's going to have to address government funding. They're going to have to address the Defense Authorization Act. This is must-pass legislation. So this Russell Amendment, the amendment we're talking about, was included in the House-passed version. It wasn't included in the Senate-passed version. And so right now, 
the two committees from the House and the Senate are in conference right now, basically hammering out exactly what the final text of the bill is going to look like. Melanie Israel from uh, The Daily Signal, uh, and that's the news arm of the Heritage Foundation. Melanie, thanks for your work on this story and for joining us tonight. We appreciate it. God bless you, okay? Thanks so much. Have a good night. Uh, You too. Take care. Gentlemen, there's a potential solution to this that probably isn't the solution uh, people are going to hope for. But we, we might have to take a... A, a traditionally um, Puritan, and when I say that, I mean that in terms of a, re- a specific religious ideology. We might have to take a specifically uh, Puritan view of government in that religious institutions may just have to decide that it's really not government's role to be serving in this charitable realm anyway. So we're not going to seek their funding at all. Therefore, we're not going to make ourselves open to their uh, their screening or their oversight whatsoever. And we're just going to do this solely on our own. It's the way it should be, isn't it? What do you think, Todd? Well, in a society that's functioning, we aren't having this debate because there isn't a war of uh, government against the church. The government understands the church's wall wants no part in taking it over because that just take, makes more work for itself and obviously everything has been turned on its head so I, I have no I mean a proper understanding of conservative allows for the kind of uh, funding you're talking about at much much smaller more targeted levels than we're dealing with now that being said I am with you shake it's time to shake the dust with our feet and if we are doing great works out there, that's how you make the statement. You're still around. You're still doing chari- the charitable works. But if they want you as part of the... If we're doing great works, it's going to show what's missing when we walk away. This was one of my concerns with George W. Bush's idea of faith-based initiatives. Is that is that, you know, I think we're going to have to come to grips with the fact um, that... Before we say yes to government doing something, we need to be cognizant of what happens when it makes sure that it ain't no fun when the rabbits got the gun. What happens when a pharaoh arrives who knows not Joseph? And this is the precedent that has been set. So this wasn't an issue under the Bush administration. But now that we've said we've said this is now an area government has these sorts of partnerships and fundings with religious groups. Now we have somebody who has a different viewpoint on this issue. And now the precedent has been set going forward. You know what I'm trying to say? Yes. I, I think we're going to have to figure this out before we agree to government intervention in any area going forward. Are we OK when the other guys get control of it in the future and how they might use it against us? You're listening to Steve Dace. From the front lines of the battle for liberty, the Steve Day Show. I know a lot of you heard about this story earlier today, and it kind of got drowned out with all of the election news, but 
Here in Des Moines, we woke up this morning to something that we are not used to. And, and I know even in cities where um, these issues are more prevalent, it is still shocking. But, but in, this, in this town, this, these aren't issues. They're not prevalent at all. And a lot of people around here are shaken up by it. I was working out at the YMCA, in fact, this morning, and they even did a prayer over the intercom for the families that went out through the entire building. I'm talking about the uh, two police officers in a Des Moines suburb that were ambushed and killed overnight. And I don't think we know much about the individual. Have you guys heard much? I know he had some kind of neo-Nazi crazy, right? That's about it. He's had former uh, altercations with the police. He's just kind of been a a problem for the Urbandale Police Department. Which is a suburb of Des Moines, for those that don't know. But uh, he ambushed them. I mean, this was ambushed style. This was an attack. And our, our community here, there's a lot of people that are kind of just in shock about this, really broken up about it. If you go to our Facebook wall, uh, facebook.com slash Steve Dace, the pinned post this evening is a link to the Des Moines Police Officers uh, Credit Union where um, Sergeant Anthony Bamino and Justin Martin, who were the two officers that were killed, uh, you can donate to their families if you'd be willing to do that. And again, it's the pinned post right there on our Facebook wall right there at the top. Just click on the link right there, facebook.com slash Steve Dace. And that's where you can go and donate to those families. And I don't know what you guys thought when you guys heard this story, but Todd, we're just not used to hearing about stuff like this here in Des Moines. This, this, this is the kind of stuff that it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen here. I thought that people snap anywhere, though. Iowa, Des Moines, we're not any more immune to the age and what it's doing to our psychology, our emotional state, our spiritual well-being. People are broken all over the place. And we have always been broken, which is why we need a Savior. But now that we're pushing that Savior further and further into the margins, this is what happens. This is what life looks like. Minus an understanding of a loving creator, the the, salve, the redemption his son brings, and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. This is what life looks like. I've lived in Iowa my, uh, my entire life, save for five years. And you're absolutely right, Steve. Uh, this stuff just doesn't happen here. And dovetailing off of, of what Todd said about um, nobody being immune to this age... Um, God's economy is not our economy. What we consider the world going to pot, um, you know, it's it's definitely not something that uh, God said. God has ever said through His Word that is is great, but He He does say that in this world you will have trouble. In the United States uh, right now, uh, we're we're going through trouble. Um, but as I said, God's economy is not our economy. We can take solace and we can have joy even in the midst of of times like this and hearing more and more stories like this. Maybe you live in a place that's kind of like this. 
um, that, that you're just not used to hearing these stories. We can take joy and solace in the fact that the Lord is in control, that God is in control. And I had a conversation a few days ago about, about trite phrases and how they're, you know, maybe a little bit overused, but there are, they ring true most of the time. And I, I think that's the case with just understanding in times like this that, that he's got it in control. Well, to me, the, the best way to fight back against this kind of darkness is to show light, it is, not to, is not to embrace it, uh, is, is not to fight darkness with darkness, but to show some light. And uh, this is the opportunity to show um, the benevolence of a loving creator to the families of Officer Justin Martin and Sergeant Anthony Bamino. Uh, just click on the Des Moines Police Officers Credit Union link right there at the top of our Facebook wall tonight and and even later if you're listening to us on demand when it's convenient for you um, this may not still be the pinned post but it'll still be up there somewhere on our Facebook wall anything you could do to help those families I know it would be greatly appreciated Giants alarm clock, Steve Dace. I for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. And this is the Nightly Buzz, where we get you caught up on some of the news we didn't have time to get to earlier in the show tonight. The buzz and the headlines from our producer, Aaron, who's been checking out your social media and uh, your water cooler. What is the buzz there? He's got those headlines. We will react instantly with hot takes. Thank you, Steve. Uh, latest update on World Series Game 7, if uh, you don't mind that I give one. Uh, bottom of the seventh, 6-3. to three, Is that correct? It is 6-3, to three. Yes. In Lester is still pitching for the Cubs. First story, the Washington Post reports on a debate over mandatory adult education currently happening in Nordic countries. This is all about forcing adults to return to school. It's seen by some over there as a way to make people adapt to the changing 21st century economy. The story is published in the Post's Inspired Life section. Uh, which means that someone thinks government forcing people to go back to school is actually an uplifting idea. Um, who would who'd have thunk? And not an assault on religious liberty. The Post says, imagine if it weren't just kids who, by law, had to attend school, but also grandparents. That is a proposal under debate in Nordic countries where officials are considering a plan that would mandate adult education in later life. In the 21st century economy, few people, according to the Post, can get through life on just the education they received when they were young. The Danish, uh, that's according to Paul uh, Nielsen, the Danish lawmaker who proposed the idea. He says, quote, in order to live with technological changes that go on and on, human beings have to be better educated. It's not simply enough to be satisfied that we have educated people until they grow up and get a job and then leave the rest to employers and the employees. Too many never really get the second lift in their capacities. Coming soon 
to a leftist state house near you? No. That is my hot take. No. It is remarkable how ridiculous it is in passing how they say it's not enough to leave it to employers employees the very people who have the incentive to thrive or die but they they don't explain that it's just it's that's not good enough that's all government does it it makes these blanket statements born out of self-righteousness but they're all smarter than us todd so it's okay and it, it just, it absolutely defies common sense that the people who would thrive the most, they are saying the opposite instinct is true, that you wouldn't want to educate yourself. That's not, that's just not true. It's demonstrably false. I think we are proving in this country that education is not synonymous, or educated is not synonymous with intelligent is not synonymous with critically thinking, is not synonymous with autonomous, is not synonymous with responsible. Is not synonymous with knowing which bathroom to go to. Indeed. Feelings and emotion are the currency of the uh, younger masses. Um, Next story. It's not the locker room pep talk you'd expect, but new research from the University of Arizona suggests that athletes might perform better when reminded of something a bit grim their impending death. In two studies, the results of which will be published in a forthcoming issue of the Journal of Sport and Exercise Psychology, basketball-playing participants scored more points after being presented with death-related prompts, either direct questions about their own mortality or a more subtle visual reminder of death. Researchers say the improved performance is the result of a subconscious effort to boost self-esteem, which is a protective buffer against fear of death, according to psychology's terror management theory. The report also went on to say that talk radio hosts can also be, uh, their performance can also be improved by thoughts of their impending death as well. That's not true, but I just, you know, it, it might you know, you hold up a picture of somebody dying to me, Steve, and uh, my performance might improve. No. Hit me. My <laughs> my hot take. Cue up the Megan trainer. My hot take is no. No. So what, you just, you queue up some blood on the highway videos like Driver's Ed back in the day, Steve? I don't remember that getting me to use my turn signals better i don't i i'm not buying this what 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 do we know do we even know this about fire and brimstone great sports speeches wouldn't it follow then that the the best coach speak in the world would just be the most vile grotesque stuff hell and damnation no my hot take is no. It is the Steve Day show. I mean, that that uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll have to move on. Uh, next story. For eleven years, Professor Duke Pasta, who's been a guest on this show, uh, gave quizzes to his students at the beginning of the school year to test their knowledge on basic facts about American history and Western culture. The most surprising result from his eleven-year experiment. Students overwhelmingly uh, believe that slavery began in the United States and was almost exclusively an American phenomenon. 
Dr. Pestra told the College Fix, quote, Most of my students could not tell any, me anything meaningful about slavery outside of America. They are convinced that slavery was an American problem that more or less ended with the Civil War, and they were very fuzzy about the history of slavery, uh, slavery pl- prior to the colonial era. Their entire education about slavery was confined to America, end quote. He went, he, he went on, but I, I think we all know what Steve's hot take is going to be. No. <laughs> you know, you you read about the slave trade, and this goes for opinions about, as I mean, the Trail of Tears, Brutal Things in Native American History, the same biases apply. I think that everybody was just, you know, sitting around, you know, trading wampa and everything was peaceful. You know, in, in Africa, uh, Western Europeans started going inland to get slaves and they started dying from disease. And then they realized, you know what? There's so many warring factions. We just stay on the boat. We make peace with one of them, give them stuff. They will capture their fellow black man and give them to us. That's what happened. No. You're listening to Steve Dace. Class, meet your worst nightmare. I'm having these dreams, but I'm scared. Steve Dace. All right, gentlemen, we are six outs away from the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series. How much do you care? Hey, I, I've got a lot of um, you know Chicago Cubs fans, friends, or friend fans whatever you want to call them, and uh, I, I I would like to see them win just so they would all be happy. That's 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 my hot take. I I, I was for the Cavs during the NBA playoffs because I, I I have this built-in empathy now for suffering fan bases after 33 years as a Detroit Lions fan. And I wanted, I thought it'd be a great story. LeBron comes home, ends the championship drought for Believeland, and that happened, which is exactly why I'm rooting for the Cubs in this postseason. Not to mention, I like being right, and I picked them to win the World Series at the beginning of the year. But I, 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 that, that fan base has suffered enough. I don't know how, unless you're an Indians fan, I don't know how you're not rooting for the Cubs. Am I wrong, Todd? You're the big baseball guy. What do you think? No, agreed. I mean, I can do schadenfreude in the sports world with the best of them. I'm a Wisconsin fan living in Iowa, after all. Uh, but yeah, that that would there's a level of sickness involved if you're rooting against the Cubs at this point. For and any, you've seen your badges get to, to to two Final Fours. You've won multiple Big Ten championships okay, in basketball yeah, uh, okay. and in football. Your Packers have won a Super Bowl. What are you talking, Schadenfreude? I think things have been fairly good for you. What are you talking about? See, this is He's typical. The high this is a here. typical Wisconsin. What, fan. I mean, yeah. what, 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 seriously, what is the source of your lament? I'm, I'm a Wisconsin fan living in Iowa. But you've had a lot of bragging rights. What are you complaining about? 
Oh, that you really want to get into the psychology of all this? Um, Barry Alvarez. By the way, is, Barry Alvarez is the only Big Ten coach to ever win th- the Rose Bowl three three to win three Rose Bowls, not named Woody Hayes. I mean, seriously, you know, what is he complaining about? I, I don't know. I, and I mean, as as insufferable. The as Milwaukee Bucks weren't good enough for you. I mean, what is he complaining about? Wisconsin, in my experience, Wisconsin fans are uh, Todd is the least insufferable. I mean, after he after the Wisconsin Badgers beat the Iowa Hawkeyes, my my team a couple weeks ago, Todd has not said a dang word to me about that, and I appreciate that. Todd, thank actually, you. that's the ultimate smack talk. Uh, no, not saying anything at when he, all. When, he, when, when, you're, when, the, when you feel as if they're so beneath you, it's not <sighs> worth saying anything. I've always found that to be the best smack. Like, it's really not even worth it to me to say anything. It's just so <laughs> expected. You're just so beneath me. And your team is so beneath mine that it just... What, I mean, I mean, does, it, does my boot argue with an ant? No, it does not. All right. Does a hammer protest with a nail? No. So therefore, there is no point in me running smack at you. That's the best smack. Or were you just being nice? Uh, well, Aaron's not an insufferable Iowa fan. He's a sufferable not- Iowa fan? Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, thanks. Well, I think. th- that's the greatest compliment ever posited on this show. Yeah. You are sufferable. <laughs> I'm sufferable, yes. You are somebody, Steve Martin. Yes, you're sufferable. We'll come back with Hour 3 in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 3 here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up here in about 15 minutes, Worldview Wednesday, we're going to look at the playbook of the enemy. What are we up against? And this was a message I gave at the church recently. We're going to let you listen in on it here in about 15 minutes. But first, three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. And it's that time of the night when Aaron gets to ask the questions around here for a change. He gets to ask any three things about any three things. There are no rules but one. He has to answer the same questions that he asks of us. Aaron, you may fire when ready. Thank you, Steve. Question one. Last night during our nightly buzz segment, we were talking about snowflake grievance culture when a Twitter user named Victoria said this or tweeted this to me. The only cure for the snowflake culture is pain, war, poverty. Nothing puts life into perspective like real problems. Do you agree with that statement? Yes. Um, I think that I can listen. I think this is especially true of men. I don't know what you guys th- what you think, Todd. In general, I think men only learn th- via pain. 
Oh yeah. Um, and and I think that this is why God allows suffering for our own good. That it does build character. It does give a perspective. And, you know, I remember that when I got back from my mission trip to Haiti with Food for the Poor a couple of years ago, and I made myself a vow, I'm not complaining about little stupid things ever again. And that actually lasted for numerous months. And now, of course, it's it's been going on three years since, or yeah, two years since I made that trip. So I'm back to complaining. It's it's in the rear view mirror now. So I'm back. I've lost that perspective. So I'm back to complaining about stupid, trivial things again. But I mean, I really kept that resolution for numerous months. In fact, I would find myself when I was getting ready to be, you know, irritated by traffic or something. I would find myself for several months remembering in my mind's eye what I seen and experienced firsthand there in Haiti and realized that. Most of the people in this world would give vital parts of their anatomy to enjoy the, to, to to suffer through the things we have to we get to suffer through as Americans. So, I think this is why uh, when, it, when you're in a culture based on conflict avoidance, you 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 are a culture that lacks character, because the Lord chastens those whom He loves. The writer of Hebrews says, "Suffering is what gives us and builds that character." Todd, yeah, was, uh, I think suffering is vital to instilling moral and situational intelligence. You know, I I have four daughters. The oldest one is is 12 and I'd say maybe she was 8 when she wasn't doing something uh, she should have been doing at home. I believe it was in interaction with her sisters and and I gave her a warning. I said, "Listen, this doesn't get cleaned up. You're going to have to go to your soccer team. You're going to have to tell them you can't play and why you can't play." She didn't she was my firstborn. She didn't believe me. It happened, and she's she's well behaved. She's not. She's known as the the alpha, the leader, and every parents are looking at me. Kids are looking at me. Yeah, this is how we roll. And so I haven't had to have. I've had to have the conversation, but I haven't had to carry out with the three daughters afterwards because I, I tell them, "You remember?" Are they, "Oh yeah." They know it's not going to be just talk. There will be pain. There will be suffering. They learn from it. Yeah, I I agree with this statement as well. Uh, no matter what age or what circumstance. Uh, that you come to faith in Jesus Christ at it requires some humbling, does it not? No matter if you're a, 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 a you know a little kid, sure, or, you're only going to ask for a savior if you think you need exactly rescue it, because it, you have to you have to humble yourself and admit I can't save myself from these th- sins. I think what's I think what's rings true the most about this statement is that uh, we've got a lot of people who are are not humble now in the snowflake movement because they only see their um, uh, own morality as whatever it is on any given day because I am uh, the ultimate expression of whatever that they whatever they want to call God and so yes I think humbling needs to happen I think that's what this statement is describing. Next question, and if you want to send a question to be considered for our three-question segment, you can do that, Aaron at SteveDace.com. Eric Liu asks a question I wished I would have gotten to a long time. How do you feel about the Christian charismatic movement? Oh, gosh. Pass. Minefield. There's no answer I could give to that. That is not going to make my life suck for for time in memoriam. Pass. In fact, I'll go back to last hour. No. No. Heretics all. 
I, I, I can't. I can't give an answer. I just went old school Catholic. I'm, I'm terrible if it's heretics all. I'm terrible if I embrace it. I'm really terrible if I try some discernment on a we, case by case basis. Because then, then everybody hates me. So no, we can't have this discussion unless we have like three hours to talk about it and actually get into the minutia of what we believe or why we believe about what we believe when it comes to. Okay, I'm, I'm done. A couple of years ago, there was a conference about this that John MacArthur put on. Mm-hmm. Who, if Strange you're not a Theo fire. nerd, you yeah. don't know what I'm, who he is. But, and he's a skeptic of this stuff. I had on uh, Doctor MacArthur and my and my friend Doctor Michael Brown, who is a charismatic. I had them both on back to back. I asked them both the same questions, their position on this, and gave each side the equal amount of time. And I was hated for uh, for months thereafter for daring to actually look at it objectively. So, no. I'd rather talk eschatology, which ought to be a hint to what I think about talking about that this is. subject. <laughs> Todd, anything else you want to add to that? Uh, you Protestants are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, question three. Uh, if you were forced to go bowling with Voldemort, Darth Vader, or Austin Powers... Who would you go bowling with? And among those three, if you all had a tournament, who would win? And why? I'm, I'm choosing Vader because the force is strong with this one. I mean, think about it. If you're his buddy, man, he could make it that you bowl a strike every single time. And the Cubs are doing Cubs things. Oh, my. What's happening? Rajay Davis, uh, Arnaldus Chapman has thrown too many pitches, is what's happened. What's happened is Joe Madden shouldn't have put Arnaldus Chapman in to throw 30 or 20 pitches last night in a 9, in a, in a 7 to 2, and later 9 to 2 game. So Arnaldus Chapman has been, he came in with one on and two outs. He has gotten nobody out. He's allowed a two-out double for one run, and then he just gave a gave up a two-run home run to home oh, run no. to Rajay Davis, and so it is now six to six. Oh, oh my! So question number three tonight, I'm going to call an audible. Question number three tonight. Okay. Did Joe Madden blow this by pitching Arnaldus Chapman too many innings in Game Six, Todd? Well, we were talking about this too many pitches right at anyway. the end of the show, and there's no way. He was just getting up to get work. I didn't think for a second he'd come in. Why would, unless we know Arietta was actually just done and hurt, which doesn't make sense to me because no pitcher on the Cubs has gotten a single out past the sixth inning. He had to have gas left. He was winning seven to two. I, I, I Joe Madden is supposed to be the baseball whisperer. I, I there has to be some reason. He did what he did because none of it makes sense. Well, they have like a, an, an entire bullpen that they can go to because of how long how uh, uh, long the pitcher last night pitched, uh, don't they? I mean, they have a full bullpen that they could go to. Why are you pitching? And you just gave up. A, you just gave up a base hit. They need to pull him. All right, they should not have pitched him last night. They need to pull him. He has faced three batters. And there was a two-out double that scored a run, a two-run home run, and now a base hit. This is a meltdown. This is what this is what happens when you throw him last night when it wasn't needed. I mean, if they blow, if they lose this, Joe Madden, goat, no doubt, man, he's going to go from one goat to a, from one goat to the other kind. I mean, this would be dead goats was the beginning can you of this. Think pro- of in modern history a more question managerial decision than his game six decision would turn out to be. 
Not to mention not, people are because gonna, it's the Cubs. Not to mention people are going to say, "Well, I know Lester. I know Lester struggles with men on base, but dude was just mowing these guys down for fifty pitches. Why'd you take him out with two outs in the eighth with a runner on? Why'd you do that? At least if you're to bring Chapman in, let Lester finish up and and see if you can get another run or two in the top of the in the top of the eighth before or, 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 or the top of the ninth before you bring Chapman in to close it out." So if they blow this man, he's getting, I mean, the questioning of him this offseason will be ruthless. Ruthless. Worldview Wednesday is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. I personally believe elitism, Marxism, atheist, government intervention, secular humanist, liberals and conservatives, materialism, nihilism, U.S. Americans, Christian, globalist, socialist, democracy, worldview, as the word suggests, is how we look at the world around us. How do we understand life as it hits us in the face? Libertarian, Tea Partier, the free market, nobody is without a worldview. The only question is, is it a good one or a bad one? So it becomes the glasses, the spectacles, the filter through which they're actually seeing life. And the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. This is Steve Dace. Hour three of the Steve Dace Show underway on a Wednesday night. You know that means it's time for Worldview Wednesday. I, of course, am not Steve Dace. I'm his producer, Aaron McIntyre, which means we're changing things up a little bit this week. We're going to be playing tonight excerpts of a sermon Steve gave to his local church in Des Moines, Iowa, about the scourge and cult that is progressivism and how it's the church's responsibility to put an end to it. He also talks about how we can actually do that. The title of the message is The Enemy's Game Plan. Let's listen in. Hosea 4.6 is our inspiration here this morning. Hosea, a prophet in the Old Testament, says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And because you have rejected knowledge, God says to the prophet, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. What knowledge had the people of Israel forgotten? The knowledge of God. But why is that knowledge important? Because it was their legacy. Many of us since 9-11 have learned more about Islam than we had ever heard before. Terms like Hamas, Sunni, Shia, Hadith. Many of these are terms we didn't know what they were September 10th, 2001. But we know them all well and good now. They're in our headlines all the time. And we've always had traditional divisions within Christianity, but Islam is very, very, very jacked up. This is what happens when your founder is illiterate, cannot read or write, leaves no written record after he dies. Hundreds of years go by, people have to debate amongst themselves, what did he really mean? Two camps immediately form, and they have been at war with one another ever since trying to interpret that. That's not true in the culture Hosea is talking to. And the culture Hosea is talking to, they are a highly literate culture. They have to be. They have oral traditions of the law passed down and then written traditions that meticulously they all must know and they all must memorize. This goes on even into the first century, the culture that Christ is born into, that he gathers his disciples from. Maybe you've read the New Testament. You thought, you know, it's kind of weird. This guy walks up out of nowhere and just says, come follow me. And people just like, 
uh, you know, just mind numb, just drop everything and do it. That's not what that means. Understand that in the culture Christ comes from, every boy went to what, effect, what essentially is Hebrew school. All of them did. They all had to learn the law. They all had to learn the scriptures. They had to memorize it until about what I guess you and I would call about the eighth grade. Ever wonder why Bamitzvahs are at 13? Here's why. That is the age Abraham allegedly took Isaac, according to tradition, up to Mount Moriah. Right? The age of manhood. And so, at that age, you essentially were determined, what would you do with the rest of your life? If you had a particular knowledge, discernment, gift for the Torah, the way, as they called it, or we call today the law. If you had a particular gift for this, a rabbi then may come to you. And you know what he would say? Come, follow me. It was the dream of Jewish boys to hear that from a rabbi. That's like saying your son played high school football. You pick up the phone one day and a big time college coach is on the other line saying, I want to offer you a scholarship. So they didn't just out of nowhere, like some metaphysical experience, drop everything and just walk away following this village shaman without any regard or backdrop at all. They understood what that meant. They had been picked. And of course, many times in the New Testament, you hear the, the, the apostles refer to Jesus as whom? Or in others even refer to Jesus as whom? Rabbi? Teacher? That is the language of that culture. Literacy was at a very high rate. Why? Because Moses commanded them hundreds of years ago in Deuteronomy, do not forget this. Remember, you must teach your children to remember. Even imprinted in your own clothes, wear tassels, do not forget this. Hang living stones in the middle of nowhere so we remember the battles that God won for us here so we would not forget. Because Moses then closes with this command, I have set before you blessing and cursing, life or death, choose life so that what? So that you and your descendants may live. Now we are not Israel. We are not an archetype for Israel. But we are a nation that was founded with a lot of indirect covenantal language like that. Because we were a nation founded largely by Christians who understood that God is not just speaking specifically here in some cases to the people of Israel, but to the whole world because the Jewish people were to be a what? A light to all nations. That's who they were to be. An example, they were to show the way. That's why they even meticulously dressed different, ate different foods so that they would be different and distinct from the rest of the world. And then the rest of the world would then look at their example and say, "Why are, what is it about you? That your God blesses you and we are suffering. Similar to how our own testimonies in a New Testament world do the same thing for Christ. People look at how, not how we avoid persecution or avoid abandonment or heartbreak or avoid difficult circumstances, but how we overcome them. How are you able to overcome them? What's different about you? Why is your marriage different? Why is your family different? Why is your home different? And this is the opportunity for us to share that testimony. But the problem is, if you forget your legacy, you don't have a testimony. 17% of eighth graders, 12% of high school seniors, 20% of sixth graders, this means you get dumber the longer you're in there. That's what it means. You get dumber the longer you're there. Hey, happens in the, in, the, in the Christian world too. 
I've read numerous studies that found the longer a, a, a future pastor spends in seminary before getting a pastorate, the less likely he is to believe the Bible. The more time they spend around academics, the less likely they are to preach God's word. Similarly, the, longer, the more educated we are, the dumber we get. So only 20% of sixth graders, and understand the Department of Education, this ain't the Federalist Papers, guys. This is like, who's the first president? Who won the Civil War? Basic stuff here. 20% of sixth graders, 17% of eighth graders, 12% of high school seniors demonstrate a solid grasp on their nation's history. A majority of fourth graders did not know why Abraham Lincoln was important. Nearly 80% of 12th graders incorrectly identified North Korea's ally against the U.S. in the Korean War, despite the fact it was a multiple-choice question. In 2011, Newsweek administered the U.S. citizenship test to 1,000 random American citizens. Oh, boy. The results? Tragic. Let me give you a few examples. Ready for a laugh? Look in the mirror. Here we go. 33% of Americans could not identify when the Declaration of Independence was signed. Even though we celebrate it on the same day every year. 65% of Americans couldn't say what happened at the Constitutional Convention. The name itself would seem to imply an event took place there and was discussed, would it not? Now, how has this happened? Let's get serious here for a second. Let me tell you what you're up against in America. How do we get from here to here? Let me tell you what you're up against in America. A cult. You are up against a cult. More from Steve Dace and his message, The Enemy's Game Plan, on The Steve Dace Show, coming up next. You're listening to Steve Dace. The new benchmark in broadcast mediocrity, Steve Dace. Welcome back to the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Tonight for Worldview Wednesday, hearing excerpts of a sermon Steve preached called The Enemy's Game Plan. Let's continue with part two. Leftist progressive Marxism is a cult, like every other cult. That's what it is. Why? Because every cult has the same five characteristics, and so does this one. Number one, a cult always begins with its own mythology every single time. Why does it have to have its own mythology? Well, because if you take away the source material or the premise of someone's belief system, the rest of it falls apart. Civil engineers will tell you if you want to dam a river, you dam it at the source. You don't dam it at the bottom of the hill. Why? Gravity. So you got to go up to the top where it, where it begins. That's the easiest place before gravity takes hold. Similarly, you want to deconstruct someone's worldview. You start at the beginning. Always start at the beginning. I mean, we, are, we have become so ignorant of this process. If you ask people, when does life begin? Well, gee, I, I don't really know. I can tell you when it begins, and I didn't spend a day in med school. It begins, now follow me now, it begins at the beginning. That's when it begins. What is the beginning? Sperm meets egg. That's the beginning. How do we know? Because it can't start any earlier than that. So that's when it begins. This used to be called common sense. 
Now you're a bigot. The point is to deconstruct, to get you to doubt your entire belief system. Now, what is today's preferred mythology? Is it Titans on Olympus? No. It's this idea that if I'm walking down the sidewalk out here in front of the church and I come upon a penny sitting there, I pick it up and I I don't presume anymore someone dropped it, which meant that someone once owned it. No, I presume that, this is amazing, this copper alloy over the course of billions of years just miraculously, just totally evolved. And, And they tried over and over and over again these amino acids and these enzymes and these proteins and they finally came up with words I can actually read on here after millions and billions of years of trial and error. If someone walked in to your home and made this argument to you about where this penny came from, your reaction would be, you're crazy. Forcible commitment You're an idiot. Again, here's your sign. Now, now you run the Department of Education. Now you're on the Board of Regents. Now you even run the Religious Studies Department at Iowa State University. You're a genius. All because you believe something came from nothing. Now I'm just talking about a penny. Imagine a human body comprised of two trillion cells. Two trillion cells. And the presumption is there's no point to that at all. So why do we believe it? Because it gives us permission to do what we want with our wallets and with our zippers. That's why. That's really what this is always about. Always. Why are there more sermons in the Bible about money and sex than any two topics? Because they're the two biggest weaknesses we have as a species. That's why. It's always about, I get to do what I do with my wallet and my zipper, and you're not the boss of me. I'll believe even absolutely stupid, absurd philosophies that cannot be defended on their face. You watch the movie Expelled. You see Jewish attorney Ben Stein make Richard Dawkins look like a blubbering idiot. And all he does is ask this noted atheist scholar a simple question repeatedly. Why? 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 Till finally he breaks Dawkins down so much, Dawkins says, I don't know, maybe aliens came and seeded our waters with DNA. You're the smart guy in the room. You're the smart guy in the room. Now, we believe this because we want to. These mythologies appeal to our vanity. They appeal to our desire. They give us permission to do what it is we really want to do, which is rebel against God. Once the mythology in a culture is established, we move on to the next phase. A cult, then, always specializes in distortion. Distortion of what? God's word and truth, always. In fact, you see this process play itself out the first time a satanic cult is introduced in all of human creation. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve, and he says to, Adam, he says to Eve one simple question. Did God really say? I don't know. Are you sure? You positive that's what he said? I mean, we're just having a conversation. Eve's response is an equal distortion. Well, God said not to touch the fruit. That is not what God said. God didn't say anything about touching it, throwing it, playing hacky sack with it. That's not what God said. He was very, very precise. Do not eat of the fruit. But again, Eve gives her opinion in response to his distortion, and now the lie is formed. One plants sinful humanity waters, and then Satan will then give the increase. 
You're listening to Steve Dace. We don't play for a team. We fight for the truth. You're listening to Steve Dace. So what can the church actually do about the cult that is progressivism? Steve has the answer in part three of his sermon, The Enemy's Game Plan. You cannot reach people or reason people in a, reason with people in a cult, but you can reach them. Here's what it takes to reach them. You. Relationship will trump, is the only thing that trumps cults. Both a relationship with our Savior and relationships with one another. You. You're what is needed. You're what your fa- you are what your family members are going to need. You are what your coworkers and your friends are going to need. We are made relationally, guys. I wish we were made intellectually. My life would be so much easier because I am not particularly prone to being relational. In case anybody has noticed, and my wife just gave me an amen, okay? All right. I have to make an effort at that. Oh, I wish, I wish it was all Mount Carmel where Elijah stands up and debates and faces down the prophets of Baal and mocks them and he's snarky and he wins. I wish it was always like that, but in many cases it's not. Understand, we are made in God's image. God in, in himself is a relationship. We, are, we crave relationship. We are needed to overcome this cult. How do we relate with one another? Isaiah 6, 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah answers and he says, Here I am, Lord, send me. I've mentioned this before. How many of us look at that sign when we walk out of here over the exit to this church. You are now entering your mission field. Everything going on in your life that is bad and is tough because of the things that happen with all the unbelievers around you, none of it surprises God. He knows how dysfunctional your workplace is. That's why you're there. He knows how dysfunctional the political arena is. That's why you're there. He knows how dysfunctional your church is. That's why you're there. He knows how dysfunctional your family is. That's why you're there. That's why you're there. Ask yourself, am I willing to be sent? Are you willing to be sent? Isaiah doesn't say, here I am, draft me. He says, here I am, send me. Romans 10.4, Paul writes, how then will they call on him in whom they have not Believed, And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? I had to give up this idea of asking pagans to believe and act better than Christians or like Christians. Not going to happen. So ask yourself this. Are you willing to be that someone? Are you willing to be that someone? I mentioned a few minutes ago the time I spent working with MSNBC during the last election cycle. They did an exit interview with me. They were thinking about hiring a full-time conservative commentator. So they interviewed me and a few others. And I sat down with one of their executive producers. 
And she, man, I grew up with Dave Day, so I thought I'd heard the F-bomb used in every possible connotation at least 500 times. But this gal was a virtuoso, okay? I mean, there wasn't a sentence that didn't include the F-bomb or the Lord's name in vain. And, and for me as a believer now, it gets distracting. Are you, you get distracted by that where you find yourself, you know... I can't understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. I'm totally stuck on how many times you just took the Lord's name in vain there, you know? But she said to me, she goes, you are the first person I've ever met with your belief system that I can actually understand why you believe what you believe. That, that, that I can see why a sane person might believe the stuff you believe. I don't agree with anything you say or think. But for the first time in my life, this woman was probably 50. For the first time in my life, I think I can see why where people like you are coming from. I still don't get it, I don't understand it, but at least I can see you have some sane reasons for where you're coming from. Oddly enough, some foul-mouthed executive producer at MSNBC affirming my sanity is one of the nicest things anybody's ever said about me. <laughs> right? Because do you understand what it takes to even get to that point in a relationship? And if you've spent any time in that part of the country, I'm telling you, I, I, I'm telling you, when I, I'm, I might, be, might have been the only person that had a biblical worldview many of those people have ever met, ever been around. Well, you know, what does Paul do? Goes. Doesn't wait for them to come. Goes. So are you willing to be that someone? Are you willing to go? Matthew 9, 37. Then Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Ask yourself, am I willing to be one of those workers? Workers. Are you willing to be one of those workers? Because, man, I see a lot of people that want to be a part of the multitude but don't want to be disciples. And disciple is the root word of discipline. And we all wrestle with this. We'll all have hot and cold seasons. I know that I do. But ultimately, the big picture is, do you desire to work? Do you desire to work for your family in a provision standpoint, but do you desire to work for God in a ministerial one? You know, if you guys want to be good little Protestants and believe in the priesthood of every believer, then we need a priesthood of every believer. Not 10% of the people do all the tithing and volunteering while everybody else just kind of coasts. That's not a community. That's a welfare state. That's not the way this is supposed to work. It's funny, you know, when I get involved in cultural political matters, I see the same people, God bless them, from the same handful of churches, no matter where I go in Iowa, every single time. There's 423 churches, I believe, in Des Moines. Where's everybody else at? Where are they all at? So we're really good at wringing our hands, waiting for somebody else to do something. Not real good about stepping up and doing it ourselves. Maybe that's your calling. You're supposed to do that. And I will just tell you, yes, it can be stressful. But I, man, I will tell you, I never feel more alive in my life 
than when I am doing what God has called me to do. You're listening to Steve Dace. such a time as this, Steve Dace. Welcome back to the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network, putting over the wraps on this uh, special edition of Worldview Wednesday, hearing parts of a sermon Steve gave to his local church called The Enemy's Game Plan. In that sermon, Steve establishes his case for why progressivism, Marxism, is a cult in the United States, what the church should do about it, and now he has a challenge for you in part five. So where's everybody at? Why is it always the same people doing everything every single time? Don't tell me you're busy. I'm up here. I work 16 hours, five days a week. I wrote four national publication columns this week, did 20 hours of radio. You're busy? I got three kids at home and a wife. You're busy. Really? Okay. Maybe we should follow you around. And I even had time to still play video games, guys. We need workers. People who are willing to do this because they've been called to do it and are willing to serve. That's how we reach people. You know why my wife will do this while she'll put up with the complaints? Some of them from me? Complaining about your complaints. You know why she'll put up with it? Because she loves those kids. That's why. You know why I will put up with all the angry emails and everything I get all the time? Because I love the people that God has called me to serve. In spite of myself. I would not like to do that. But I almost can't help myself because this is how I'm called. I'm just telling you too, if you're not serving where God has called you, you're missing out on the best part of your Christian life. You're doing all the real hard stuff without the stuff that gives you that reward, seeing lives changed, reaching people, connecting with people, seeing, wow, even though I don't necessarily sense how God is working in my life right now, it's amazing to see what he's doing in yours, so I know he's still there. You're missing out. You're selling yourself short. God will get things done whether you show up or not. We have services here every Sunday, even though the same group of people are usually the same ones putting it on every single week. God makes it happen. So understand, because you're not there, it's not like the whole thing falls apart. You're the one missing out. What is it God has called you to do? Don't you want this to be something? Well, I do the same 15-minute devotional every morning. I go to the same church every Sunday. Is that what you want? That's not what this is. This is not a routine. This is a life. It's an adventure. You're missing out when you don't answer your call. And the people you're supposed to reach are missing out too. So ask yourself this. Are you willing to be one of those workers? Let us earnestly pray for the Lord of the harvest to send us out. But most of all, for us willing to be sent. Willing to be sent. Willing to answer that call. And that is the conclusion of Steve's message, The Enemy's Game Plan, preached originally at his local church in Des Moines, Iowa. You want audio of that? Uh, it'll be on the podcast later on this evening. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, Micah 6-8. 
You're listening to Steve Dace.